Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And tonight at 8pm on BBC One is the live Brexit debate as Theresa May takes questions from three of her friends that she's paid lots of money to so they're already briefed on the answers. They've pre-recorded it so May doesn't actually have to engage with anyone in real time so as you watch she can sit at home and skin a mouse with her nails for relaxation. Uh, And now on ITV One, Jeremy Corbyn is taking part in a Brexit debate where I'll be taking audience questions and then answering all of them as vaguely as possible while shouting general election after every other sentence. He'll be joined by a panel of his own party ministers to provide an alternative opinion. When the fourth round will... On Channel 4 now, we go live to our Brexit debate where Tony Blair will be taking on Boris Johnson, though sadly not with weapons, as the two of them will verbally fight as we ask an audience of people from the Middle East the tough question of who they trust least. And now on BBC4, our Brexit debate, as we show an archive episode of Top of the Pops featuring classic footage from Europe and Morrissey. And next on ATV2, it's our Brexit debate special, where several past Love Island contestants run around Gibraltar in barely any clothing as an angry British bulldog chases them. Coming up on Channel 5, is Brexit an alien conspiracy? Does the deal come from Mars? Hosted by Jeremy Vine, entirely wrapped in Baco foil. Tonight, CBB's Bedtime Stories is read by Jacob Rees-Mogg. As the fossiled magic wand with a face tells them a tale of fantasy and fiction that he's written himself called My Brexit Plan in a special two-second-long programme to make sure your children never sleep again. On Fishing TV, we now cut to four men in waders trying to snag their first Nigel Farage in the Solon using the bait of just a dog whistle. Actually, I think it's a good deal and I'll definitely vote for it. No! Coming soon to Netflix, Stranger Things Season 3. and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to not notice because it's too busy shouting at itself in a burning skip. 
This is episode 123. I'm Tian and Duyeb, and this week, as Environment Secretary and pummeled elbow Michael Gove insisted everyone back Prime Minister and depressed toilet brush Theresa May, he didn't say into what, but judging by his record, it'll likely be pointed. Cabinet minister after cabinet minister have been lining up to promote Theresa May's shitty deal, with all the enthusiasm of someone putting the bins out. They know it isn't really how they want to spend their time, but it's a necessity if they don't want to cause a right stink indoors. Michael Gove said on The Andrew Marr Show that the deal is imperfect, but it's the right thing to do, which I'm pretty sure he's used as a chat-up line before. While haunted Morph and Home Secretary Sajid Javid backs the deal because it secures an immigration system that reduces net migration down to more sustainable levels. Yes, but only because, as I've mentioned before, no one wants to come here if it goes through. What is a sustainable level anyway when EU net migration is already at its lowest for six years? I'm pretty certain Javid is only going to be happy when he sees the puppets from the Dolmio ads carted off on a charter flight at 2am. But even if you think it is a good deal for a secure immigration system because you're some sort of idiot, then you're an even bigger some sort of idiot because it turns out, as Sajid revealed, the secure immigration system won't even be revealed until after the vote on May's deal anyway. I mean, we've only been waiting for it for nearly a year. Wouldn't it be ironic if Sajid Javid is waiting for it to be delivered from abroad? Maybe that's why. Javid says it's very unlikely that the immigration policy is going to be published before December the 11th. In the same way, it's very unlikely that the biggest change in 45 years to immigration rules isn't going to be a good one, especially when a skills-based system is being put in place by people so underskilled they can't even deliver a policy on time. In the same interview, Javid said that seeing footage of a 15-year-old Syrian refugee being bullied reminded him of the racist abuse he suffered at school. So perhaps in his mind, if he kicks all immigrants out of the country, he's saving them from that sort of abuse because you can't be racist to classmates if you're only surrounded by vitamin D-deficient, pallid post-Brexit Anglo-Saxons. Leader of the House of Commons and mother, Andrea Leadsom, has also backed May's deal, saying it's the only one on the table, which, as a mother, is pretty bad form, as how are her kids meant to eat that? And Chancellor and anemic Sam the Eagle, Philip Hammond, said May's deal was the best way to leave the EU, before pointing out that there aren't really any ways that would be as good as staying in the first place. It's not the best sales tactic I've ever heard. Oh, the best way to leave the plane is via the emergency exit, but considering we're 50,000 feet up in the air, it's not as good as just staying on board. Hammond admitted that the UK economy will be hit under all Brexit scenarios, which is true if you exclude the scenario where it just doesn't happen. But he said that May's deal would minimise the costs, making the economy just slightly smaller. An economini, if you like. It's always great when the best thing you can say about a plan is that it's going to hurt less than other plans. Stick this in your eye. It'll be less painful than me pouring lava on your entire lower half. And those are your only options. This means May's administration are the first government in the history of Britain who are willingly making things worse for the country. And knowing them, they'll add that to their list of achievements in time for the next Conservative conference. Hammond's comments were a teeny bit odds with those of the Governor of the Bank of England and what if George Clooney hadn't really aged well, Mark Carney, who's predicting that May's deal will leave the economy 3.1% smaller. Which isn't just sort of slightly, is it? Oh yeah, I've only had 3.1% of my body lopped off. I'm just slightly shorter now without the entire top of my skull. Carney did say, though, that a no-deal would cause the worst crash since the 1930s, with a huge rise in interest rates and a fall in house prices, which made me feel incredibly shallow, as I have to say, I've always been against a no-deal scenario, but now I've heard that I won't have to win the lottery just to buy a shed on Hangar Lane Roundabout, I'm almost keen. Almost. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. How can we check what Mark Carney is saying is correct and not just some sort of Project Fear prediction? Well, because Twiglet with Frostbite, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has said that it's Project Hysteria instead, which generally sounds a lot more fun, as while Project Fear is probably some sort of low-budget horror flick, I'm pretty sure Project Hysteria was an enjoyable warehouse rave I went to in the late 90s. But who will you trust? Mark Carney, who's in charge of the main financial institution in the country, or Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's got so much faith in what he preaches, he's put a ton of investments in Ireland. Let's face it, Jay Reese is probably most upset because going back to the 1930s is still several decades off his ideal. Despite a tiny amount of support, May still hasn't sold her deal to most MPs, and yet another cabinet minister resigned on Saturday. Minister for University, Science, Research and Innovation and Alternative Harry Hill, Sam Jima, quit after the Prime Minister announced the UK would be pulling out of being part of the Galileo satellite navigation system. Yes, once again, everything May does is a perfect metaphor for Brexit, willingly paying £1 billion towards a scheme that will have nothing to do with making us directionless, mapless and completely out of orbit. But hey, rest assured it'll all be okay as May says we'll just build our own. You know, using all the empty food cans we'll have and by strapping it to a seagull, probably. So, Gima left in protest and said the UK would be repeatedly and permanently hammered for years to come. Which, I mean, yeah, that's just standard Christmas drinking, right? Ministers have released a summary of the Brexit legal advice which says the Northern Ireland backstop will continue indefinitely or until alternative customs union arrangements have been made. So yes, as I said before, indefinitely. They may as well have put, so this is in place forever unless I shoot lions out of my arse that land directly into the Queen's bosom or during a blood moon. Attorney General and a man with a voice only a villain in Space Odyssey would have, Geoffrey Cox, said this was a calculated risk, which likely means if you turn it upside down, it says that you're all boobs. Labour and the DUP have complained that the government are in contempt of Parliament by not publishing the full legal advice, as they should do after losing the vote on it on November the 13th. So, the government might now have to deal with that as well, which is great, as they don't have much else on. Cabinet sources say the full legal advice contains stark warnings about the backstop. So, and forgive me if I'm reading too much into that wording, but stark warning? Backstop? They plan to build a wall that separates the North. Right? Right? May spent part of the week taking her Brexit message to Scotland where she knew people would be so keen to hear it. Her entire visit consisted of a couple of hours in one factory in Renfrewshire where they make leather car covers. So yes, this could have all been a cover for May to collect her cabinet's new skins instead. May said that her deal is a good deal for Scotland, you know, in the same way that some idiots reckon getting knocked down a few times and breaking your teeth supposedly toughens you up rather than just makes toffee hard to eat. Despite no one in the local area even knowing she was there before she disappeared again, and a Brexit deal generally being opposed by the majority in Scotland, the Prime Minister wished them all a happy St Andrew's Day, praising Scottish contribution to life in the UK. She's very much the sort of friend who'd send you a Christmas card for the first time in three years saying how you must catch up while refusing to acknowledge that she killed and ate your cat while you were on holiday that time. May attended the G20 in Buenos Aires over the weekend where she made all the impact of a fly on the windscreen of a car on the motorway, telling other leaders that she had no plan B for if her deal didn't go through. I mean, fair play, when all your Brexit negotiations have worked so swimmingly so far, why start with backup plans or, you know, prep for anything at all whatsoever that makes it look like you even remotely give a shit now? <laughs> why would you do that? May had promised to speak to Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman about the war in Yemen and the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And she did, uh, using her meeting with him to mainly say, don't do it again, you naughty boy. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that is pretty much it. That's the sort of sturdy international leadership we can expect from May in our post-Brexit country. Hey, Russia, you'd better leave Ukraine alone and promise to say sorry, or you'll have to stay an extra 30 minutes after class. What class? I, I don't know. 
There are five days of debate over May's deal in Parliament, with eight hours of debate per day before a final vote on December the 11th. But before that, on December the 9th, Theresa May challenged Labour leader and uncollectible Funko Pop Jeremy Corbyn to a TV debate, which the BBC agreed to. But Corbyn said he just wanted a head-to-head debate with May, something that ITV had offered, whereas the BBC format involved taking questions from a wider panel. May has accused Corbyn of running scared, even though she's the one that can only do a head-to-head if there's several other heads on her side at the same time, like some sort of weird hydra serpent. Saying that, I like the idea of a wider panel because firstly that means that two leaders who don't know what they're doing with Brexit may actually be asked by some direct questions by someone who may actually know something, and also it means that by not watching one channel I can avoid even more Brexit chat from even more awful people. I joke, of course, I mean, I would uh, totally watch it, but um, hang on, let me just uh, let me just check my diary... Um I'm busy. I'm busy that night. Uh, that is... Uh, let me just check. Uh, that's right. I am screaming into a bin. In other news, Labour MP and Master of the Perfect, I really wish you weren't taking this picture of me smile, Kate Osama has resigned as Shadow International Development Secretary after telling a Times journalist who doorstepped her to fuck off and threatening to hit him with a bat before throwing a bucket of water at him. It's always the way, isn't it, that, you know, a frontbench MP finally acts in the public interest and then has to leave. Ugh. This is all due to an ongoing issue with her son and recently resigned Herringay councillor being convicted of having £2,500 worth of drugs on him at a festival. And it came to light that she employed him despite the conviction. But in the UK, you are innocent until proven guilty. And let's face it, it's highly likely most of the people involved in politics are just annoyed that he hadn't brought those drugs into Parliament with him, because how are they meant to get through the Brexit deal debate now? And she has been replaced by Dan Carden, MP for Liverpool Walton. And what happens if you cross an apple with a baby? So that's yet another resignation and quick replacement that proves, once again, Labour could indeed do as good a job as the current government. Lots of Conservatives spent the weekend tweeting promotional pictures of them visiting food banks, which, considering the Tory party's austerity cuts, caused food banks to be needed. It's a bit like a hunter taking a pick with their illegally killed trophy. I bet most of the MPs had their rifles confiscated on the way in, and special advisers pleading with them to try not to stand and pose on top of a tired and hungry nurse. UKIP leader and Emperor Palpatine, Gerard Batten, survived a vote of no confidence from his party over his employing of racist activist and cross between Aaron Paul and a potato, Tommy Robinson. But they didn't endorse Robinson's position as an advisor. And it'd be really nice to think that this is due to UKIP being opposed to the extreme far right, but I suspect it's more that the term advisor horrified them, as it might mean they'd have to listen to someone other than themselves. 136,000 French people have been taking part in protests against the rise in fuel costs. They caused a lot of damage and one death after setting fire to a lot of stuff, which, when you complain about fuel costs, seems a little bit wasteful to me. And 41st President of the United States of America, George H.W. Bush, died aged 94. He was the instigator of the first Gulf War in Iraq in 1990, a war that, as so often happens, we all thought was pretty bad, but it was only after the even more pointless reboot by his son we realised it could have been much, much worse. Hey, Podchamps, I hope you're sufficiently stocked in salt and pepper to rejoice in seasonal greetings. I mean, it's December now, isn't it? So it's full-on Christmas tat everywhere with absolutely no escaping it. It's on, people. It's on. All the shops are again piping out Mariah Carey, not realising that if she did get me for Christmas, she'd be largely disappointed. And I'm already in present panic mode and have been scouring all the newspaper gift guys to see all the things no one I know wants. Um, every year is the same. I don't know if, you've, I don't know if you look through those. Uh, they've always got some sort of hot gift 
gift guide and cheap gifts and weird gifts, unusual gifts. It's basically always the same. It's just page after page of things that really suit people that I don't think actually exist. I mean, this year, the theme in presents for him appears to be just for men who like shaving while drunk. Uh, the theme for her is ugly pink stuff, but also gin to cope with wearing it while everyone judges you. And then for kids, it's weird wooden shit that no child will ever like. But let's face it, they're also not going to notice it either as they'll be too busy playing Fortnite and hating you all day. So, we've got no better ideas of what to get people. Although, then again, depending on how the next few weeks of politics go, maybe I should just buy everyone tinned goods and dried pulses, like we're doing Harvest at school. If I wrapped up each barley individually, uh, it seemed like there's a lot of presents, and then I reckon it'd be really funny as loved ones unwrap uh, the first barley, and then uh, it would keep being funny for the first few barleys, and that'd be really unfunny. And then about 30 to 40 barleys in, really, really funny again. Power of comedy. What I do like, actually, is that while I'm struggling with presents for most of my family, uh, my daughter is only eight months, so she doesn't really understand Christmas or toys and generally just enjoys playing with a bit of paper or a cardboard loo roll, so at least she's going to be cheap to buy for. Yeah, she's pretty great like that. I mean, she's pretty great, uh, you know, uh, for a number of reasons. Today, uh, she spent her entire lunch flinging a piece of butternut squash across the room before breathing loudly into a cup for several minutes at a time. And uh, it was then I realised, whoa, she's after Heston Bloomingtile's job, so uh, better watch out. Um, Right, uh, lots of pod admin this week. So let's get the usual crap out of the way. Um, Thank you to those of you who reviewed the show last week, especially the lovely written ones, hugely appreciated. It's now on 128 reviews on iTunes, so only 72 more before Apple Podcasts might notice this show and then I don't know what wipe out every other podcast declaring the competition over and giving me a crown made of the tears of other podcasters or you know they might just feature it or something which would be really helpful so please do that um, if you would like to review the show you can do it not just on iTunes but also on many other pod apps or websites or on a form that I hand to you at the end of the show with a pencil that looks like it's been chewed on because yes it has it's really tasty so uh, should you wish to donate to the show as well um, you can do that if you like that would be lovely I mean it's Christmas isn't it? it's the season for giving up and um, you could do that with a one off uh, donation thingy at uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro and that's ko-fi.com forward slash purple bro or for a monthly thingy at patreon.com forward slash purple bro and if you join that, I'm actually going to be putting something bonus up there very soon. Uh, actually, a proper reason to be part of that. But then I'll probably also release that bonus afterwards to all pod listeners because, um, you know, I can't really be pro-elitism when I do a show like this, can I? It'd be a little bit wrong. Um, so uh, another thing that I always forget to plug on this show as well is if you want to join my comedy mailing list about all the gigs and things that I'm doing, um, and then do sign up at uh, tinanddoyeb.co.uk. Um, if you can't spell that, uh, just sort of throw random vowels into google it normally sorts it out um i'm going to be sending my december t-mail at some point this week and that's going to have some info on a few last minute frankie ball supports that i'm doing this month as well exciting so um i think uh, one of them's already sold out but the other two you might be able to get to anyway sign up you'll find out um also right boring that's the other stuff that out of the way now um last week i asked any of you european listeners out there to get in touch with your views on brexit and two of you got in touch which was great and actually more than i expected um the partly political broadcaster uh, at gmail.com account almost felt loved almost almost felt warmth just for a second there um both listeners uh, said i could read out their emails so i thought i would do that um first up is eckhart in germany who wrote um you asked what people in other countries think about brexit well of course i can only speak for me and the people i've talked to but the consensus is that brexit is an incredibly stupid thing to do mostly we struggle to understand why anyone would do such a harmful thing to themselves but for most of the time we do not think that much about it donald trump features much more strongly in our thoughts i'm a bit of an 
exception because our daughter um, is in university in the UK. So I started to have an eye on Brexit just in case we have to have her extradited because of a no deal or what may or may not happen. Over time, I started finding that Brexit became something of my favourite reality show. When reading about or listening to British politics, I also get constant subtitles from Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister in my head. So overall, it can be fun in a black humour kind of way. It also distracts me from more pressing problems like climate change, rising populism, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Ah, oh, well, thanks, Eckhart, for your emotes. Isn't it lovely to know that Brexit is a distraction to others um, in other countries, uh, which I kind of hope it is, really. It's so ridiculous. I mainly hope that uh, we get some sort of sense of our place in the world by all the other countries going, ha-ha, this is ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, I still don't really know why anyone would do such a harmful thing to themselves either, Eckhart. Uh, but that is what's happened. Hey, everyone needs uh, a martyr maybe um so that's one of the emails so thank you to Eckhart for uh, that and you'll get me the second email there's sort of a, a theme here really um from the, and I suppose it's probably what I'm asking for when I do a comedy politics podcast and ask people to write in um but this is from Adrian in France and uh, Adrian uh, sent in uh, I am very interested in Brexit for three reasons number one like US politics it's a real life soap opera number two it's just good to know stuff about the world especially will it affect the rest of Europe possibly by either encouraging or discouraging other other countries to leave affect peoples of the institutions etc um unfortunately your crappy decisions affect all of us hey now adrian it's not my crappy decision my i've made lots of them that wasn't mine um and number three uh, i lived and worked for three years in the uk where i contributed to a company pension scheme right now there is no way to get the pension scheme money back to france and i'm quite worried i might never get it back in which case your mess might have costed me fifteen thousand pounds and 30 years of interest out of my retirement um that's a, sad, that's a sad number three. Um, I, I will contest a bit when uh, they say uh, your mess again. Hang on, I'm pretty sure I didn't do it. I'm sorry. Um, but thank you both for emailing in. It's very upsetting, isn't it, when you know the sort of personal effects uh, that it's going to have on people even outside the EU uh, and how widespread this is going to uh, cause problems, whether that's to do with relations um, or real money being lost. Um, but it's also very heartening to know that outside the UK, and based on my case study of just two responses, that people mainly treat it as a soap opera. Though I think the difference is, obviously, when a character dies in a soap opera, lots of fans send in flowers and cards, and I'm not sure we're even going to get that, as we weren't well-written or realistic enough. But, hey, fingers crossed. Um, so thank you tons to Eckhart and to Adrian, um, both for writing in and for listening, and uh, best of luck, Adrian, with your your funds. It's really sad tales. Um, look, if you too are in the EU, on even or even outside the EU, and somewhere else in the world, Botswana, I'm looking at you, because uh, still pretty much deadlocked on those uh, on those podcast stats anyway um, I'll happily read out your Brexit thoughts in the coming week if you have any and you'd like to let me know um, Levy or Remainy or just Laughy or Sad Ones whatever you want to send through please do um, also another big thank you um, to Pete who emailed with an excellent long list of potential guests somebody actually did that seriously on my email box it, was, it felt like it was a fucking party more of that please more of that um, right this brings me to next week's show um, as you know uh, this show comes out on a Tuesday but the vote on May's deal is on December the 11th which is next Tuesday. So, to combat that um, and to combat the possibility that a podcast might just immediately go out of date once I release it, I'm going to release a bit of a podcast on Tuesday, like a bit of one, you know, that will look at the week of debates on the deal and the televised debate, and then I'm going to follow it up uh, with a different bit of a podcast, either Wednesday or the Thursday, about the deal vote and the fallout. So, I'm not going to have any guests. There's going to be double the amount of Brexit, double the amount of podcasts. Sounds fun? No, obviously not. It'll be awful. But after that, then we'll all go back to normal or as close as normal as possible for the week after. I mean, 
mean, God knows what normal will be by then. Uh, this is all predicting that I'll have anything remotely interesting to say or anything actually uh, of note will have ever happened. Um, maybe I should just work out what the audio equivalent of purgatory is and play that on loop until the new year. But that's next week. Next week, two mini-shows to kind of combat how things are playing out. Um, however, on this week's show... There is something very interesting to say. Obviously, I'm not saying it, but instead, political analyzer and pollster Kieran Pedley is, and he breaks down what the polls mean for what may happen or may not, or who knows, and oh, God, why do we even bother? Also, there is, of course, inescapable, endless terminal Brexit. If this was a film, we'd at least get some sort of make-a-wish trip for the country about now, but no, not even that. We can't even get taken to Disneyland. And, of course, to kick things off, it's... I'm proud to admit that I've been a health tourist many times before. Um, every time I go abroad, I eat vegetables, walk around and breathe the fresh air. Of course, that's a, that's not what a health tourist is. Nor is it someone who wanders around taking pictures of people in the gym. That's just something I do for fun. Instead, it's mostly bollocks term as people who come to the UK just to benefit from the NHS care only cost around 0.3% of the entire health service budget. But still, the government has been trying to crack down on health tourism rather than, you know, actually fund the NHS. And sadly, this was stepped up yet again last week as the Commons voted to increase the immigration health surcharge as of this month. The increases being advertised as going from £200 to £400 a year for most migrants needing NHS care. But if you're working in the UK on a five-year Tier 2 visa, then it jumps from £1,000 to £2,000, which is a pretty brutal cost, just so you can't get an appointment to see a GP for six weeks. It's like paying for train Wi-Fi, only to find that it worked at one station and the rest of your four-hour journey you have to wince quietly while the person next to you takes up too much leg space. The immigration health surcharge was brought in back in 2015. Uh, you remember, you know, in the, uh, the awful results so the government's austerity measures were being blamed on people from abroad and that had absolutely no consequences at all. Do you remember that? Nothing. No, pretty sure it made absolutely no difference whatsoever to anything. I'm trying to think, hang on, let me ever think. Uh, no, no, maybe I'm missing something. I'm sure it just sort of washed away, you know, just sort of petered out as a thing. Um, since 2015, the scheme has brought in £660 million to the economy. Uh, and that sounds great, hey? And they're hoping this increase will bring in a further £220 million. So, you know, brilliant. That's loads of money, isn't it? And that is great because it will leave uh, just a funding gap of over £29 billion for the NHS. So that's totally worth it to basically tell foreign visitors they have to cough up or die here. Immigration minister and woman who looks a lot like she tried to bite you if you walk past her, Caroline Noakes, did the same old shitty thing of saying it's the National Health Service, not the International Health Service, which I mean that is its name, well done. But a lot of NHS staff are international and with a system that's currently experiencing a shortage of over 41,000 nurses and over 11,000 doctors, it seems weird to say, hey, please come and work for us and save people and we'll give you top staff benefits of having to fork out even more for basic treatments. Now don't hang around sick people, but please also be a nurse. Thanks. In order to make money for the NHS, this system is going to lose the NHS even more staff, which will cost them even more money, and that seems like a hugely pointless endeavour. The Migration Advisory Committee reported in September that EU migrants in particular contribute over £2,000 in tax more to the NHS than British workers. So, these workers are paying more tax and then being charged again with a fee that's increased 238% in just four years. So, again, those who bring in most will be driven away in a drive to bring more money in. That's a nice way to advertise the UK, right? Please trade with us. We hate your citizens more than we hate ourselves. The Royal College of Nurses are continuing to campaign against the charge for NHS workers and Labour, Lib Dems and the SNP oppose the vote so it only just scraped through. All of which gives some hope that it could be fought against. But hey, it's all OK because once Brexit all kicks in, they'll fill all the places in with UK talent that they haven't yet trained up and while EU nationals will likely get hit by the immigration health surcharge too, it won't matter because we'll rake in millions by becoming a niche tourist destination for patients who want euthanasia treatment but can't afford Switzerland and by turning up to us and being neglected, they'll be sorted out 
out within days. Phew! A regular theme of the past few weeks of politics has been a general sense of cluelessness and panic only matched by me when I accidentally listened to Radio 1. Sorry, uh, by weeks, I mean months. Uh, no, it years. Uh, as somebody who follows it all, uh, I've gained some confidence in being able to pretend that I can explain what's happening to people that I know who ask me about it. But in reality, I am just generally saying words in an order that I think sounds clever, knowing full well that everything could be dramatically changing before I finish trying to sound like Mr Clever Trousers. But while little unqualified me is fearful of predictions, them pollsters are unafraid to try and guess the future, checking the weekly stats of who thinks who's a better leader or which party they'd vote for at an election, or as I once had, should pet owners who only feed their cats vegan food be prosecuted? Yeah, that one wasn't particularly a political poll, but let's face it, either way, the answer is no, they shouldn't, because what will happen is if that cat doesn't get enough meat, they'll eat their face while they sleep in search of it, and that'll be punishment enough as it is. It's the sort of shitty thing cats would do, absolutely. Polster's got a bad rep after the EU referendum, uh, but then they pretty much nailed the 2017 snap election on the head. So with all this turmoil, can anything be accurately guessed now, or is the future hazy? What does public opinion say about current happenings? And should we all just gamble away our lives on the worst possible outcomes, and that way if they happen, we're still a bit happy because we can go on holiday and pretend it hasn't happened, or if you win enough, lobby a cabinet minister to try and change it. Kieran Pedley is a professional pollster and political analyst whose regular podcast Polling Matters looks at ways to predict what may happen based on opinion polls, facts and figures, as well as being a dab hand at suggesting useful political bets to make. Which makes a nice change, doesn't it? You know, from watching an endless torrent of programmes where the same five people get asked why they still haven't changed their minds since five minutes before when they'd reeled off numbers they'd just invented. So, I thought this week, with all that's going on, it'd be really good to ask Kieran what the current polls say about the future of Brexit and Parliament, as well as a few tips on what we should do should we want to make any gambles a lot less serious than the ones the government are doing. Excuses, excuses! Ah, yeah, look, very quick one. Uh, this week's episode was recorded super properly, like really properly, uh, but despite both of us, me and Kieran, using all the equipment and recording like champions, uh, Kieran's track is a little glitchy at times, but I made my wife listen to it all and she didn't even notice, so it could just be there's no problem at all, or she knew that by saying that it was the best way to get rid of me. Um, either way, I hope you enjoy. Here's Kieran. Kieran, it is really lovely to speak to someone who actually looks at facts and numbers and things and can work out or can predict things based on that. Um, so with that in mind, in this incredibly uncertain period, um, can we see any possibility of where things may go with May's deal and, you know, it, it, the future outcome of Brexit based on public opinion? And I know that's a very big question to start with. <laughs> Have that one. Uh, go for it. <laughs> Well, first of all, Tina, and thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of your show, and uh, it's great to sort of speak to a sort of fellow podcaster and uh, you know and meet new people. Um, yeah, I mean, your question is a, a really big one, right? Um, I think the first thing to say, if it's not too much of a cop out, is that we are living through a real state of flux, and it's very, very unpredictable what happens next. And if I was your listeners, um, and I was hearing somebody on television or somewhere else saying with any degree of certainty where we go from here, I would be very suspicious of them. Because if you look at the various options that appear to be on the table, none of them seem perfect in terms of them actually happening. So we have, you know, will Theresa May get her deal through Parliament? Doesn't look like it. Um, she doesn't have a majority in Parliament without the DUP anyway, and they look like they're going to vote against her deal. Um, and obviously there's a significant number of people in her own party that don't like the deal either. So straight off the bat, 
Um, you know, that's looking very difficult, at least in the first instance. But, and I'm sure we'll come on to this in more detail, if you look at some of the other options, like um, a second referendum or a general election, um, none of those are flawless either in terms of them in terms of the logistics of them actually happening. Obviously, people will have their personal views on whether they should or not. I'm just talking about the logistics of it. It's very difficult to see how a general election comes about, although it could. Um, but if a general election isn't forced, then how on earth is a people's vote or a second referendum going to be forced? So we do live in uh, extremely um, uncertain times. And so, I mean, one of the things I always wonder with, with polls in general is, do the government pay attention to these results because you know i keep hearing that public opinion on brexit has shifted um and there've been lots of surveys for example there was a large salvation one for channel 4 that said now there's more kind of uh, in that would prefer remain uh, than a leave option do you think uh, well well firstly do you think government are going to pay attention to this and and secondly uh, was the channel 4 one are these are these surveys kind of wide enough and thorough enough to actually prove that this shift is is definite so, I mean, on the question of um, whether politicians pay attention, um, it probably won't surprise your listeners <laughs> that a pollster comes on and says, yes, they do. Um, yeah, I, 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 think, I, think, but I think there is I mean, there's more than enough evidence for that, right? I mean, let's take a step back for a couple of years. So the, well, last year even, um, why did the 2017 general election happen? Well, it happened because Theresa May was substantially ahead in the polls and saw an opportunity to win a big majority and make things easier for her in the Brexit negotiations. Obviously, that didn't happen. But how did she reach that conclusion? Well, obviously, her advisers were presumably advising her to, to go for it. But, you know, the polls were saying that she was significantly ahead. And if we go even even further back to, to Brexit itself, well, why did David Cameron call um, an in-out referendum on Britain's membership of the EU? OK, I wouldn't say it's 100% because of the polls. Um, but if you look at the time, um, it did look like um, UKIP's surge in the polls was going to cost David Cameron another term in office. So, I mean, there were other things going on, of course, with the defections of um, Douglas Carswell and Mark Reckless and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, that was surely part of his, um, you know, his thinking. So politicians definitely pay attention to the polls. And I think that just as an aside, I mean, there is some reasonably good news uh, for Theresa May. I mean, let's, 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 let's give her some. There's been a poll out by Servation this week, um, which asks about, from what you have seen or heard so far, do you support or oppose the UK government's agreement? Um, and the uh, the sample here is those that have seen or heard of the, of the deal. And uh, 37% support, 26% either, neither support or oppose, and 35% oppose. So quite split. But the total number that support the deal has gone up 10 points uh, in the space of a week or so. So, you know, there is evidence that, um, that uh, you know, support for the deal is increasing. Um, and she'll be encouraged by that because that will give her her internal um, people in the Tory party cover if they want to support her deal to do so, if they see public opinion saying that that deal should be supported. Um, so they'll definitely be looking at the polls. And if the polls do shift in favour of her deal, then um, they'll be making that case very loudly in the media. Um, on the point of... You know, opinion on Brexit shifting, there's definitely been um, a shift towards Remain. And the salvation poll you mentioned for Channel 4 was an excellent piece of work. And I guess we can come on to why in a minute. But there's definitely been a shift to Remain. I guess it's just disputed a little bit to what extent there is that shift um, uh, and, you know, whether that's decisive enough for us to say with any certainty that Remain would win if there was a referendum again. Right. So when you say it's... I mean, and, and this comes on to the, the larger question of... 
you know, is Brexit too nuanced and complicated to kind of get a definite picture from polls from in the first place? But is that, you know, when you say that uh, it's difficult to know exactly what picture it gives, why is that? Is that just because there's so many factors as to why people answer things in polls or what's the reason? So I think that one of the things you'll see quite a lot at the moment is that um, people will say, okay, Remain would win a second referendum. And and the, and the, the survey you referenced a moment ago uh, with Servation and Channel 4 was a great piece of analysis, uh, 20,000 plus sample size. Um, Chris Hanratty, uh, was a, a very uh, good um, academic, was using um, some statistical analysis to project across the whole country how people would vote in another referendum. And I think the headline figures he produced were 54% remain, um, 46% leave, which is obviously a, a decent shift uh, since the referendum itself. The reason that I... Um, I'm not casting doubt on those results as such, but the reason why I think we should be cautious is if you look under the bonnet of how um, sort of EU referendum polls are done, then I think what we see is that a large part of the reason Remain leads now is, is, is because there are a decent chunk of Leave voters who um, say they don't know how they vote next time, and we don't know um, whether they... And those people get excluded from opinion polls, typically. So if you say you don't know in an opinion poll, you typically get excluded from the headline voting attention. There may be in another referendum, leave voters would come back home, as it were. And then secondly, what it seems what seems to be the case with these uh, polls show remain ahead, it's not leave voters necessarily switching on mass to remain that's causing it. It's new voters that didn't vote last time um, joining the electorate. So this would be presumably younger people who are pro-remain, because we know the young people are typically pro-remain. Um, and then they, they, they didn't vote, either didn't vote or couldn't vote in 2016, and now they want to. Now, that's perfectly plausible as a reason why Remain could win next time. New younger voters join the electorate. Maybe, to put it crudely, some leave voters die. Um, but, you know, we, if, if you're doing a poll and you've got the wrong number of those new voters in your sample, then it can give a different impression of what the actual end result will be. I'm not saying Salvation have done that. I'm not saying that other people have done that. I'm just saying there's a, there's a word of caution there that getting the right, if you're, if Remain winning next time is dependent on new voters, then making sure that you've got the right balance of new voters in your poll is going to be really important. So all I'm saying is just a bit of uncertainty there about how, uh, who would win out of leave and Remain. And then on the nuance point that you made, I think that's a really good point um, that I think uh, is underplayed and underappreciated when, to be honest with you, not just in public opinion, but in any sort of analysis that we do with data and politics or elsewhere. So I've just, I've just been talking about you know leave versus remain in a second referendum, but that's quite a binary um, reflection of public opinion, right? So, yeah, okay, in a referendum, people are either leave or they remain, fine. Um, but actually, there's lots of shades of grey in terms of what people actually want to happen. So I guess what I'm getting at is it, if there is another referendum, yes, people will have to vote one way or another. But that doesn't mean that everyone in the country is, is only wants to remain now or wants to leave after all. So to give you an example of what I'm sort of rambling on about, if you look at um, a recent YouGov poll uh, mid-November, they asked, generally speaking, what would you like to see happen now? And they gave a range of um, six different options. I'm going to read them out very quickly for your listeners, but this gives you an idea of just how nuanced public opinion is. So 16% said Britain should accept the draft deal, this is May's deal, and go ahead on <clears throat> with Brexit on these terms. So that's 16%. 11% said Britain should reject the draft deal and seek to reopen negotiations and seek a different deal. So that's 11%. 19% said Britain should reject the draft deal and leave the European Union without any deal. Again, 19 there, one in five. 8% said there should be a, a referendum on whether to not to accept the Brexit deal. 
Uh, and then 28% said Britain should uh, stop Brexit and remain in the EU after all. And then 2% said something else. And I, I said there were six options, and re really there were seven because 16% said don't know. So what you can see there is, and I posted this on Twitter, is lot, it's not just about leave and remain. There are a range of opinions about what the next steps um, should be in public opinion. And I guess to some extent that's reflected in Parliament as well. So um, I still think that's useful. We, st we, st we can still learn things um, from polling. But I think that it goes back to that old, old saying, the will of the people or what the people think. I mean, the reality is... Um, whether it's on Brexit or something else, the will of the people or what public opinion thinks varies wildly. And I think there is a, there is a degree to which at some point political leaders are going to have to lead. And, to, and I think what happens next is going to largely depend on which of those options I've just read out are actually presented to people. Theresa May wants it to be uh, a choice between no deal and her deal, obviously, because she thinks she'll win that argument. But of course, other people want the argument to be between Remain and her deal and so on. So I guess really where public opinion stands depends a bit on what are the choices that are actually going to be put to them. And I guess even more importantly, how are they going to be put to them? Is there going to be an election? Is there going to be a referendum? Or are we just going to watch what Parliament does? So, um, yeah, I mean, a long-winded answer there, Tim. But, I mean, granted, there is, there is nuance and it's important. Well, because I was going to, and, and uh, you probably correct me for being wrong here, but the, the Servation one, for example, was it just a leave or remain question? Because I, I saw one, um, and I can't remember which poll this was awful research uh, from your host here um but i uh, i saw one that said that i think they would prefer may's deal to a remain deal but they'd prefer no deal to may's deal but they'd prefer remain to no deal so it was a really a mix of pie chart. <laughs> but but again when you bring in a third option suddenly there's a whole different raft of results as to when it's just a straight up yes or no much like the referendum was so the big servation one was that just a, a simple I mean, obviously, remain, leave, or don't know. Was that what that one was? Oh no, there were there were there were. You're right to say that there were a wide range of um, of questions, and I think Servation have done. I'm not sure if it was that poll. I can't remember myself, so that shows up my research. But it was either that one or other Servation polls have done those trade-off exercises, and I think YouGov have done um, some similar work as well. So yeah, you're right that, that those trade-offs have been put to the public, and I think, typically speaking, remain tends to come out on top. Um, so, I mean, if you're sitting there listening to this in favour of the uh, sort of so-called people's vote, second referendum, um, you could be quietly confident that Remain would win next time, um, without being certain about it. I suppose the question is, how does that come about? Like, logistically, again, and I hate to bore off about logistics, but it is important. Like, how is there going to be a second referendum when it doesn't look like Labour are that keen on it at the moment? Um, particularly Jeremy Corbyn. And even if they were, um, you would assume they would have to bring down the government um, to make it happen. And it's not 100% clear they can do that. So, I mean, there's lots of speculation that gets thrown around um, in Westminster, and we all love it, don't we? That's why we do these podcasts and things. But, um, you know, I find it impossible to see how Theresa May ever offers another referendum. I think she'd quit before she did that. I'm not clear what Tory prime minister could do that um, in the current climate. So if you and people may dispute that, right? But um, I know some people say, well, if the option is that or no deal, then maybe the Tories will hold their noses and have another referendum. I'm just really not sure about that personally. So if you take that at face value, then, well, how does a second referendum happen, right? Because if Labour have said that if they can bring the government down, then they will, and they'll negotiate a better Brexit. That's their sort of famous um, policy, isn't it? To have a general election, and if they can't campaign for a people's vote. Well, Labour have said if they have a general election, they're still going to do Brexit. 
if they don't have a general election, they'll call for a people's vote. But surely by definition, if you follow me, if they're not having a general election, how can they make a people's vote happen or a second referendum happen? So it's all, it's all, very, um, it's all very confusing. And just one final point on that. Um, <clears throat> on the second referendum, I, I think there's a bit of confusion about how one comes about, again, logistically. Um, I think some people think that if Parliament just passes a motion, then there can be another referendum. I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but I'm not convinced that's true. I think what happens in reality is that you need the support of government to make a second referendum happen. Uh, I think you need primary legislation to get through Parliament, you need timetabling, you need it to be obviously, the Electoral Commission needs to be involved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think a simple, a simple motion in Parliament gets you a referendum. You need government buy-in. And again, without rehashing everything I've just said, Clearly, that's going to be very difficult. So, look, we're recording this on Thursday the 29th, right? Over the weekend. <laughs> By the time this goes out, things could, I could have egg on my face and things could have dramatically changed. But um, it doesn't look that way. But the trouble is, what that means actually happens next. Oh, it's really difficult to say, right? Yeah, absolutely. No idea. I was aware of that. I, sh- I should have mentioned at the top of this interview that by the time this is released, it could all be completely different. Uh, yeah. It's so up in the air. Um, it's, it's, it's all... early, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, like you said, one of my big uh, concerns with the idea of people's vote is between now and March 29th, there's not enough time for one. I don't know when we could fit. Not enough time for a general election. There's not enough time for anything. Um, I mean, as it is, it looks like, uh, was it the Conservatives May, uh, if, if May's vote goes down, it looks like on New Year's Day, they're having to be present a second a second plan which is oh, well, terrifying everyone, everyone, everyone hung over. well look i mean but I, think, I think this is the but this is the point right you, you raise a good point I, I think the question on the second referendum is is how does it happen so i think that on the march question can be solved uh, my understanding is that the eu would allow a delay uh, in article 50 um or uh, so, yeah, a delay in Article 50 is probably the best way to put it, uh, if there was a sp- special circumstances. So that might be an election or it might be um, a second referendum. So I feel like the March deadline can be dealt with. I mean, it's a bit hairy, right? But um, I think it can be dealt with. The question on my lips really is, okay, how does the British government, whoever it is, end up in a situation where, it, where it's um, advocating for one? And the only way I can see that is if Labour have won a general election with a second referendum in their manifesto. Um, not impossible, really not impossible uh, to see how the Labour leadership could, could suddenly change their mind. The government gets brought down um, and they, and, you know, and they, and they Labour win an election based on a second referendum. Problem is, for the government to be brought down, I think... My, my judgment, anyway, is that that requires the DUP to vote against the government in a no-conference vote. Um, now, there is precedent for surprising things like that happening. Um, to go, go down memory lane a little bit, in 1979, the SNP voted down a Labour government, um, led to Thatcher in power. Um, very different circumstances. Don't need to go into those here necessarily, but people can look up the um, devolution referendum around that time, which uh, led to the SNP falling out of Labour and voting against the, the Callaghan government in the vote of no confidence. So I guess there is precedent for, um, let's say, uh, you know, unlikely bedfellows. So the SNP leading to Thatcher. You know, it's not impossible the DUP led to Corbyn, as it were, by voting down. Um, uh, a May government. Trouble is, if, if if the Labour Party are saying, well, we want a second referendum, then doesn't that make, give the DUP some cover to not actually vote down the government? So I don't know. It's all speculation, Tim, and to be quite honest with you, but it, it just shows how difficult it is. 
it constantly feels like a sort of a chapter from Catch Twenty Two almost every single day. Um, it also brings me to a question. Um, I was going to say Brexit aside, it's still not. It's very much a part of it. But the the Conservatives and Labour have been kind of neck and neck in the polls for I was going to say the past year. I think it's even been a bit longer than that, hasn't it? Really, since the snap election. Um. I mean, firstly, what does that mean? Does that mean either of them are in a good position? Um, but also, is it worth us reading into this when we haven't necessarily got an election coming up? I'm going to regret that probably within 24 hours, aren't I? <laughs> but saying that, with the understanding there isn't an election coming up, uh, you know, should we be reading into these polls now? Um, I think we're right to be cautious for that reason. Um, and, and let's be honest, uh, voting intention polls... Uh, have had a checkered history in the past couple of election cycles. It's worth your listeners, uh, if they you know, separating what a voting intention poll is from the normal polls you see that say, oh, do you like Theresa May? Do you like Jeremy Corbyn? Um, do you support the Brexit deal, etc.? Yeah, most polls that are done that are on issues are of the whole population, um, a nationally representative sample of the whole population, regardless of whether they're going to vote or not. Whereas voting intention polls are trying to model who's going to turn up on election day. And that's obviously quite difficult because it's hypothetical and you don't know when election day is and so on and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, voting intention polls, we have to sort of be very careful about over-interpreting them. But at the same time, they are significant because, let's face it, if the Tories were 15 points ahead in the polls now, they probably would uh, try and um, do an election again, even though last time went really badly. So, um, you know, let's be cautious, but they are still... Don't don't get me wrong, people are most um, definitely um, reading them. Uh, in terms of, like, who, who would you rather be is an interesting question in this situation. I think there's a debate here in um, polling and in, ac- in academics. Um, a lot of people will point to the fact that Labour are not in a historically good position in the polls, whether it's the headline voting intention or Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the opposition's personal poll ratings. Um, they've gone back down to the doldrums that they, that they were in before 2017, where he you know, he did have a good election, no doubt about it, and his personal poll ratings uh, soared, but they've gone back down to... Uh, to where they were, which is not very good uh, for various reasons. So if you look at those two things, and if you look at the um, local elections last year, um, there are people out there that will say precedent shows that this is not a party on course for government. Um, I've been someone that's been quite vocal in challenging that, and um, you know, uh, this is not a consensus, so there's, there are other views available, as it were. But one of the things I, one of the things I say is that, uh, you know, precedent can only tell you so much in unprecedented times, right? And it's okay, it's a little bit of a soundbite, but I, I do stand by it. Um, and look, the reality is, yes, the Tories are slightly ahead in the polls at the moment, but um, they've got to get through this Brexit negotiation and this Brexit vote in one piece. And it's not clear who the Conservative leader will be at the next election. Those are two quite big variables um, that could damage their voting coalition of 40-odd percent. And if that fractures, let's say there's a resurgent UKIP maybe because they think there's betrayal over Brexit, you know, Labour could almost win by default by just keeping their coalition together. But of course, on the flip side, you know, Labour trying to navigate this choppy waters where they haven't promised a second referendum on Brexit yet. Maybe they lose votes on on the sort of pro-Remain flank uh, if there's a sudden election because they because Labour goes into an election saying that they you know, they're still going to do Brexit, they're not going to have a second referendum. So. The way I characterise the situation at the moment, you've almost got these two blocks of around 40% that vote Labour and Tory, and both sides, and there's, there's lots of varying views within those blocks, and both sides are trying to hold them together as best they can. And it might be, you know, um, that actually who wins the next election isn't the party that grows their support from last time. It's uh, last time being 2017. It's, it's, who, it's who's actually uh, able to hold the most voters from 2017. So. 
um, you know, I'm definitely worth looking at. Um, but I think that for me personally, uh, I'm going to regret this. I think I would still, I, I, I still <laughs> think that I'd rather be in Labour's position than the Tories, simply because the Tories are so divided over Brexit. Um, it's not clear that they're going to get through in one piece uh, this next six months or so. But what one thing I will say, um, and I, you know, regardless of whoever, whatever your political persuasion is listening to this, is that you know the Conservative Party of Great Britain is a pretty resilient beast by historic standards. You know, we, we predicted its demise before, and it seems to keep recovering and adapting and winning. So maybe I'm wrong, but my hunch is that you know Labour don't have to gain very many seats to stop the Tories being able to form a government next time. Uh, and that's where my money would be. But yeah, again, very, very difficult uh, to predict because the next six months is going to be so integral to what comes next. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm not going to keep you long because this show has a short enough shelf life as it is without me soaring off the end, causing the sneaky elf on the shelf to fall off and hopefully break its shitty tiny legs. That's what you deserve, Santa Spy. You'll get nothing from me. What I mean is, uh, there's no point in me spending 10 minutes going through what bits of May's deal mean when it's very likely that within a week it won't even be a thing anymore. We've all got better things to do than that. Well, I don't, but you probably do. What? Not even one of you? Oh, okay. Well, look, here's a quick summary of a few bits from the past week anyway. The backstop could be indefinite, keeping the UK in the customs union forever under May's deal, which may not be a thing in a week's time. But that's only if no one actually sorts out the Northern Ireland border issue satisfactorily once we leave. Basically, if we had a competent government with actually good ideas ever, then you might think, oh, it'll probably only last a year or two. But no, we don't, which is why we're in this situation in the first place. And now we're going to be in political limbo for eternity, forced to eat mostly bland food and only watch Hollyoaks forever. I mean, I imagine that's exactly what limbo is like. 
The government lost a vote in the Commons on November the 13th, which means they must now reveal the full Brexit legal advice to Parliament. Except they haven't done that. They've only shown a summary of the legal advice. So pretty much all the other parties, even the DUP, you know, in a last-minute moment of good that makes me wonder if they're about to die, all of them have asked John Burkow, the Speaker, to launch contempt proceedings. If it goes through to a vote and the government are deemed in contempt of Parliament, then all MPs found guilty of it could be expelled or suspended, which would be funny, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> they've only got days till the deal vote. <laughs> and then another 21 days to sort out another deal. <laughs> and then no time for anything. And what would it mean if the government aren't around to do the Brexit bit? I have no idea. You're welcome. It would be a constitutional crisis. And the only thing I'm sure about is I'm buying some goddamn tasty popcorn just in case. And no, still no one really likes May's deal, especially Wales, who found out there'll be at least £600 million of funding down. And who knows what will happen to 60% of their exports, but I'm not going to buy them because I've already spent my money on popcorn. So that's sort of all this week's hot issues on May's deal. But I thought I'd quickly tell you about two other areas of Brexit stuff. Brexit stuff, if you like, or Brexit stuff, if you don't like. First up is fishing, because the fisheries policy seems to take up quite a lot of the chat. That's all it ever is. Oh, we've got to have, have control of our waters, say lots of people who always sound like they've got some sort of urinary tract problem. But the thing is, all of that is a bit of a red herring. Oh, see what I did there? Red herring. Fishing is only 0.5% of the UK economy. That's its place. Pretty small scale. Double half. So much of the conversation about it is all about British water territory. But we export most of the fish we catch and we import nearly all the fish we eat from outside the UK because many of us are weed in the sea because they don't have control of our waters and we don't want to risk it, probably. The biggest fish issues, or fishes, aren't controlling our waters but controlling the fish trade. Being outside the customs union means all fish products will have rules of origin requirements and being outside the EU, they could face major tariffs on any sales which will affect the fishing industry massively, making much of it no longer cost effective. Effective. Also, the fish processing sector employs over 14,000 people, most of whom are EU workers, who may would class as low-skilled and therefore no longer allowed in the country. So, unless loads of Brits want underpaid stinky work, then that industry could entirely collapse. Plus, when it does come to controlling our waters, it's not just the EU fisheries policy that controls us, but the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which sounds like something Triton has put in place. But Article 62 of that enforces that states give other states access to the surplus of the allowable catch, but... How do you work out an allowable catch when fish don't use passports? And most of them would likely put two fish fingers up at border control. So all I'm saying is, there's loads of complicated things, but it's not just about access to waters. That's all a load of old codswallop. Triple off. And really, if the government wanted to protect the UK fishing industry, then they'd stop carping on and try a different angler entirely. The other little uh, brief bit of Brexit was the Galileo satellite navigation system, which you probably heard this week that the UK has completely pulled out of it on account of the European Commission decided that if we say part of it, we'd be barred from full access. Now, I'm not sure what sort of bits that would be, but it's, if it's just the different accents you can get to tell you directions in, I reckon that's all right. The uh, overall cost of Galileo is £9 billion, and the UK has contributed £1.2 billion to that, which is quite a lot of it, and it's due to be launched in 2020 with civilian and military variants, because, you know, it's pretty hard taking a tank down a one-way system. But it's the military bits, actually, that the UK would be barred from, not the voices bit uh, at all. Um, as the British Army was meant to get access to encrypted services from 2026, the EU suddenly realised that, hang on, maybe you shouldn't be getting all them freebie secrets if you won't even let us work somewhere as unexciting as, say, Basingstoke. May has said that the UK can just build its own one, which technically we could, although according to the UK Space Agency, it cost at least £92 million, as well as the £1.2 billion we've already wasted. But hey, what else would we use that money for? I mean, we've got nothing else for it, have we? What else would we do? Oh, sorry, I can't, I can't hear your answers. There's a very loud giant bus outside. 
The other option is that the UK collaborates with other countries who are part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, a group that is not just for two people and a pirate. But who knows what sharing of info or cost that would require. It's all a big shame that we've left the Galileo satellite navigation thing because I feel like right now Theresa May could really do with some guidance on the best route to take, even if it involves a lot of U-turns. Well, I hope that very briefly explains those two things that may or may not be things in a few days. Who knows? But next week, the deal. Get that popcorn ready. And now, back to Kieran. Do you think there's something in the the polls? I mean, obviously we saw a coalition government in 2010 and then we didn't see one in uh, 2015. Um, And we've sort of got one now, kind of not, but, you know, (laughs) in a way. But do do you think the the polls being this close kind of predict a future of coalitions or minority governments... Uh, for the for the foreseeable for the foreseeable next election, I mean, because the, again with with Brexit, everybody's so divided. But politically, people seem all over the place. Uh, I can't I can't see one party getting a majority. No, I think there's a lot. There's, there's a certain logic to that, and I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. I think um, you know, if someone put a gun to my head and said predict the next election, um, I'd be looking at a Labour minority government of some kind. Um, but I'd feel a bit cheesed off that I had someone put a gun to my head and asked me to do that because, yeah. because uh, it's, a bit unfair. it's a very aggressive well, yeah. way of asking. Yeah. They could just ask you politely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, I think that I mean I wouldn't have any degree of certainty over it. I do want to emphasise that. Um, but yeah, so there there is a certain uh, logic to that. At the same time, I am minded to, to remember 2015 when you know obviously the Tories had um, a coalition with the Lib Dems and that you know. By the way, as an aside, uh, there were a lot of people that thought David Cameron promised an in-out referendum on Brexit, thinking he never would have to deliver it, but uh, because the Lib Dems would deny it in another coalition. I mean, there's a big debate about that. But anyway, point is, there were a lot of people that said, well, the Tories can't win a majority. They haven't won a majority since, I think, 92. Um, they're not going to do it again, but they did. So, um, yeah, I mean, my instinct, I think a lot of people's instinct will be that um, neither Labour or the Tories will get a majority government next time. But I, I, I wouldn't be certain about that. I mean, let's say, let's give two scenarios, right? Let's say um, Brexit goes terribly, there's no deal, um, you know, the Tories split, it's just all very bad. Um, the country goes through uh, real, uh, real economic turbulence. Why wouldn't Labour take a sort of, you know, six or seven point lead in the polls and potentially therefore be on course to, to get a majority of some kind? Perfectly plausible. Likewise, I mean, the Tories um, at the moment um, maybe. Uh, they get they, they get through Brexit okay, you know, one way or another, um, and you know they end up um, able to win, you know, able to win the next election by by the age old age old tactic of um, you know talking about Labour spending plans and and, and uh, preying on fears about Jeremy Corbyn being prime minister. So and they get like an ever so slight swing towards them, but that's enough to get them back to where they were in 2015. That's also plausible. So I think, you know, yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree. I think minority government of some kind is probably likely, but it's not certain. What, what I've loved about speaking to you today, Kieran, is that um, we, you've given so much very, very useful information. Thank you. But also, I know that we're both also completely unaware of what's going to happen next. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's brilliantly exciting. Uh, which brings me to questions with slightly more uh, certainty uh, to them. Um, but obviously, with your, your expertise in looking at polls and your brilliant podcast and uh, politicalbetting.com, um, do you... You know, for for us amateurs that look at polls, do you view all opinion polls equally? Do you have to kind of vary which ones you look at depending on what and where they're they're looking at and what samples they're taking? I mean, what's the best way to approach it from an amateur's point of view? Mm. Um, so it depends how much work the amateur wants to do, I suppose. What I would say is that if someone's a member of the British Polling Council, 
I would use that as something of a rubber stamp of approval. So this is a, a body that, um, you know, it it's not state-backed, but it sort of regulates the how, how polls are done. It's a it's industry-driven, right? So it's, you know, like I say, it's not government state regulated uh, a state regulated body but it's uh, almost the industry regulating itself to some extent but at the same time anybody that's a member of the bpc will adhere to certain rules about being transparent about what they're doing the question working how they've sampled how they've weighted the data that sort of thing and i think actually the process of wanting to be part of the bpc um is something that you know tells me what I need to know about that particular pollster that they that they take it seriously that they want to be seen as credible in the industry and that sort of thing. So I think uh, I'm not saying if you're not a member of the BPC just ignore, but I would look at that. Um, and there are the usual suspects out there that are you know BPC members that are producing polls semi like very regularly. So YouGov and Servation probably the most frequent, but you've also got other companies like you know Ipsos Mori, Comres, uh, the BMG, uh, I shouldn't have started naming them because I'm going to forget people and <laughs> people now. Uh, but no, there's lots of um, there's lots of pollsters out there that are regularly producing um, numbers, uh, ICM that you you can trust. I think where I would be cautious about anything that looks like it's uh, surveys of newspaper readers or so you know if you see a headline that says Express readers say you know let's leave with no deal or Mirror readers say 90% of mirror readers say let's let's remain. You know these aren't representative samples of the population, right? So what you're really looking for is a credible pollster with a track record that's a member of the BPC, and I think you can take them seriously. I think invariably people gravitate towards YouGov and Servation because they produce numbers most frequently. But you know frequency doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're the most accurate. That's not me casting shade on either of those. They're very good organisations. I know people there both places very well um but you know there's also others that maybe produce numbers less frequently but should still be taken uh, very seriously and i mean the final thing i would say is if there are new entrants to the industry i mean let's um let's let's judge them on their their track record i mean one one that's um i don't know if controversial is the right phrase but one that um, gets a lot of attention is uh, sky data so they um that's run by a guy called harry carr who's uh, very good and um they use a sample of sky customers to try and get a representative um, sample of the British population. And that sounds a bit mad. Like, how, how can Sky customers be representative uh, of the British population, you might ask? But the reality is, actually, there's an awful lot. I don't know how many they've got now, but there's an awful lot. Something like a million households or a million customers or something. Um, so they've got a, quite a large uh, panel of respondents they can go to, and they can and they have all the information on those people. And they, can, they can devise a representative sample from going... Uh, yeah, from doing that, doing that survey properly. So, you know, they're even though people might be suspicious of them, um, they're quite good actually, and their track record is no worse than other online pollsters. So, you know, I'm, I'm keen to see new entrants and innovation in the space. But, you know, I think it's just look, look at the track record, and you can't go wrong. Yeah, that does. I, I'd never really thought about that with Sky Data, but uh, there's lots of people across all kind of spectrums and classes and ethnicities and everything, you know, and areas that have got Sky. So it makes perfect sense for that to actually probably give quite reasonable uh, results. Um, I, I wanted to ask as well that, uh, you know, because uh, uh, looking at politicalbetting.com, I've always been too scared to place a bet on politics. Um, but I remember uh, Andy Zaltzman, brilliant host of The Bugle and fantastic comedian. I remember in 2015 that he'd bet quite a lot of money on a conservative win so that if they did win, he'd be sad but he'd get money <laughs> and if they didn't win he'd be happy so it, it worked for him by the way um which i always thought was so smart but but does does betting on politics make some of the less fun parts of it more interesting do you would you recommend it as a way of maybe escaping some of the the gloom
home, uh, you know, or or is there a danger <laughs> in viewing it as a, as a gambling subject and maybe not taking it seriously? Oh, well, okay. First thing I would say is obviously gamble responsibly, kids. Um, so, <laughs> of course, of course. I, 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 um, I, I do bet on politics, but I, don't, I, don't, I personally don't bet loads and I don't bet all the time. What I tend to do is I will look at things like uh, the next leader of the Tory party uh, and, I, and I'll look at the runners and riders and maybe I'll put a bet on a sort of reasonably placed outsider. So at the moment I've got a bet on um, uh, was it Sajid Javid. Um, which I'm regretting a bit because he voted Remain, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the Tories are going to go that direction uh, next time. But he's the Home Secretary, so um, and he wasn't when I put the bet on. So it's you know I got I got him at something like I want to say twenty to one. Was it fifty to one or twenty to one? I should know that. But I got him at good odds anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's a sleeper bet if you like. Uh, we'll have to wait and see whether that comes off or not. Um, you know, I, ha- I had a similar bet on Theresa May actually, not loads of money, maybe twenty quid, something like that. Um, because she wasn't the front runner at the time, and you th- you looked at it and you think, okay, I can see a path for her, and uh, you know that one was successful. Other ones haven't been. Um, likewise for the Democrat nominee for 2020, I've got some money on Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know that that race is going to be wide open. Uh, I may may well lose some money there, but again, I've got, not got loads of money on it. I think I've got 50 quid or something. So I, I bet like a decent chunk of money on the outsiders, sort of semi regularly. Um, I know there are other people. I think Mike. I don't know what Mike bets at political betting and how how much and how often and stuff. But I know that he he's betting much more frequently and you know, he's almost treating it like a trader would, you know, to trying to hedge against different things and uh, you know m- move on move markets on Betfair where he can, uh, you know, to to make money. So depends how depends how involved you are in it, really, Tim. And I mean, I, I would I would you know if people are interested in politics and want to put the odd tenor on. You know, whoever's going to be the next leader of such and such, or when the next election is going to be, that sort of thing. Yeah, do it. I mean, it's fun. Um, but I don't. It doesn't really cloud how I think about it. It's it's kind of a for me personally. It's just an aside. It's like you know, if I see something that I think looks like good odds, which means I can take money off Shadzi at that brooks, uh, then I'll do it. <laughs> which, which, which brings me to uh, almost last question, which is simply, what should we be looking out for in 2019? Now, you—I don't want to give anything away—but you said in your uh, in your email to me that you had a very interesting theory about Keir Starmer, and I have to ask what it is. So, what what should we be looking out for? What what is this Keir Starmer theory? Well, I mean, this is this is uh, this is something that's just popped into my head, really, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know <laughs> I don't know um, if you can even bet on it. Um, but I have that like Keir Starmer is someone that's made lots of noises about. Uh, second referendums being very pro-Remain. I think it's not hard to read between the lines to suggest that he is quite keen on, um, you know, having a second referendum, voting Remain and, you know, Britain staying in the EU. Um, I'm sure, you know, in the official, on on the Mars show or something, he might deny that, but it feels like that's where his mind's at. So I just wonder whether he might end up being, one of the stories of 2019, if we don't have an election, uh, might be that he resigns and um, because he wants uh, Labour's policy to be to support a you know people's vote or second referendum, um, and that's not the policy of the party at the time. It may be that Labour moves in that direction anyway, in which case there's no need for him uh, to do that. But I think people like him are quite useful to watch. I think because they're not from the if from a Labour Party perspective, I mean, because they're not from the traditional. I hate the word Blairite because I think it's taken on. It's just taken on a completely different meaning to what it actually ever did mean. But um, you know, they're not from that kind of um, anti-Corbyn wing of the uh, PLP that are 
you know, would, would like still now, probably ideally him not to be Labour leader. You know, Starmer's there in the shadow cabinet. He's been very supportive. He's very pro-European. Labour Party's membership is very pro-European. It fits together as an idea that somebody might uh, take the plunge if Labour's policy on Brexit doesn't change. There are people on the backbenches like David Lammy, um, Chukaramuna, who are you know, very much banging the, the second referendum drum, as it were. But you just feel like it would be more. It would be more seismic if someone on the um, on the front bench of Labour uh, resigns. So I don't know if that will happen. I mean, it's just something. I think he's one to watch definitely, um, where because he seems to be the most vocal person um, in the Labour shadow cabinet um, that doesn't seem quite happy with where they're going at the moment. Cool. All right. Well, we'll we'll note that one down, and uh, we'll look at it again in the in the new year <laughs> when we've got <laughs> slightly. I was going to say a vague idea of what's happening. Who knows? Who knows where we'll be in the new year? Um. And uh, lastly, thanks very much for talking to me. And uh, just one question that I ask uh, everybody I interview for this podcast, um, which is simply that apart from yourself and your fantastic podcast, uh, Polling Matters, um, where and who can you recommend that the listeners go to follow, read up on, um, you know, for I was going to say accurate and fact based political predictions, but anything really. Where where do you like getting your information? from who are your favorites oh that's interesting that's an interesting question actually so i would say there's a range of journalists that i follow uh i i, I quite like the times i will say personally so people like sam coates matt chorley um matt chorley is quite good actually he's quite funny as well he doesn't take it all so uber seriously um and then you've got the obvious people like you know nick robinson or laura kunzberg they tend to have their finger on the pulse if you want to know what's happening uh, as soon as possible um but a website i will i uh, will shout out is called britain alex um it's run by a bunch of uh, students, I don't mean that. That sounds a bit sounds a bit mean, doesn't it? I don't mean it that way. <laughs> it's run by some students, a uh, bunch of students, um, and uh, you know they basically bring together all the local election uh, by election results on a Thursday night, I think it is, and uh, all the polls as well. So if ever I want to look at what's actually happening. Um, it, you know what the latest polls are saying. Has there been one out today? That sort of thing. Britain Alex is usually a really good uh, Twitter account to follow or a website to follow if you're not on Twitter. And I, I would plug uh, some fellow people that um, uh, I, I do podcasts with. So Leo Barassi, if you're interested in um, stuff on climate change and the environment, he's written a very good book on that, The Climate Majority, which is all about how um, you know people that campaign against climate change can, can win people over who maybe are on the sceptical side. Matt Singh's also a very good person on politics as well, but I'm going to end up naming half my Twitter uh, uh, sort of uh, people I follow. But yeah, I think there's loads of good people out there to follow if, uh, if you're interested in stuff. I'm mainly, as you can probably tell, I'm mainly plugged into Twitter, but uh, it's not the only place to follow politics, of course. Thank you to Kieran for the chats. Uh, you can find Kieran on Twitter at Kieran Pedley. That's K-E-I-R-A-N-P-E-D-L-E-Y. And his podcast, which we mentioned in the chat, is called Polling Matters. And I regularly listen to it because, well, it's very good. Uh, it's very good political observations and predictions based on them polls and history. And, you know, things that aren't just made up by an idiot on social media. It's very good indeed. So do check that out on all of your favourite pod apps or even just one of them. You don't have to do all of them. Actually, sod that. No, sod that. Put it on four different pod apps at once, each in a different corner of the room and then hit play at the same time and sit in the middle so you can feel like you're surrounded by analysis like a sort of less rock and roll flaming lips album or a more rock and roll flaming lips album if like me sitting down without having a child wail at you is the most exciting thing you can imagine doing 
Next week, there might be a guest. Who knows? But I will still need guests for some point in the future. And ideally, I'd love to chat to someone cheery for the last show before Christmas, like last year's conversation with Sarah Corbett at Craftivists, if you remember that. Um, so if you have any recommendations for something not entirely doom laden, I mean, hey, a little bit of doom laden is fine for Christmas, right? Very much the spirit, but not entirely. Then uh, do let me know. And of course, anyone completely doom laden or even doom ladles spooning the doom soup, um, then that's good again for next year. So you can recommend those for then too. And you can tell me about any of those recommendations by contacting me at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com that's had loads of action this week so get in on that. Um, or of course you can engrave your suggestion onto a potato and send that to me in the post but I worry it'll get all pulped together on the journey and I'll assume it's just a load of old waffle. So probably, as always, it's just best to email. <laughs> And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Hat tip to you for all your superb listening habits. And please don't forget to review this show on all your podcast downloading dens. Donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi. And just tell everyone you've ever known to listen in. You know, shout it at the bus driver. Send the URL of a round-robin email to your office with some sort of crude gift that may get you fired. Write it on the side of your dog with a pet-friendly dice so everyone in the park complains about you to animal welfare. Do, or perhaps don't do most of those things. Big thanks to Acast for letting this train of noise stay on its pod platform, to my brother The Last Skeptic for all his background beats, to my amazing other half for doing the voices on the intro bit because I'm not that good, and to Cat Day for typing up the linear liner notes every goddamn week. This will be back next week when the government will have decided the best way to sell Maysdale is by telling everyone it's better than being dead, only to be contradicted by several of the lords who have autobiographical evidence to prove them wrong. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by brand new British satellite system, Pull In and Ask Someone. If you need directions, just pop this high-tech £92 million technology into your car and it will tell you to wind your window down and just ask someone, why are you too embarrassed to do it? We've been lost for hours. Just admit we're lost. Several different voices are available for the device from Nagging Partner, Condescending Parent and from the learner's Creepy Driving Instructor. Plus, for an extra small cost, we'll throw in a pothole detection service where you'll know exactly which collapsing roads to avoid because you'll feel a really uncomfortable bump when you drive over them. Pull in and ask someone, because there's no driving force quite like stubborn ignorance. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.